This is ASIN, the Association for the Study of Ethnicity and Nationalism. To find out more, visit asin.ac.uk. Seminar on everyday ethnicity, everyday national. And we have Yet Hopkins um, from the University of Dundee, School of Psychology. Yeah. Um, he's going to be talking about everyday citizenship, identity, matters. So, yeah? Okay, well, I should explain the photograph. I was asked by a colleague from the photograph. And that's me on the left. This is taken, I think, in 1991, 1992. We had a head of department which was keen on making the department more sociable. So the idea was we'd be photographed in our research environment. Most of my colleagues are psycholinguists or perceptual researchers, so they were all in the laboratory. This is Andy McKinley on the right, and we thought we'd go to a bit of a rougher part of Dundee to show our street cred that we were down there, out with um, where it was really happening. Uh, I should say that Andy always wears a suit, and he was wearing dark glasses as well. He used to drive a very nice black Audi, so we would turn up in some of these rather dodgy parts of Dundee. We'd get out, he was wearing his suit, I'd get out dressed like that. We had a photographer who was doing the photographs who would go to the boots and would get out the tripod that was wrapped in a blanket. And of course, people, I think, thought that we were drug dealers and we'd come to take somebody out. We do have a friend who is a police officer and he said that up here he did indeed do an armed arrest. So we really were in a pretty rough part of town. The uh, things I want to talk about are, I think, encapsulated by a number of characters that I want to introduce you to. First of all, an Italian beauty queen, Benny Mendes, 1996. Secondly, Sir Nicholas Fairburn, Conservative MP, now dead, one of my favourite dead Conservative MPs. A woman of Chinese heritage, wearing a Scottish shirt and a man with flowers in his beard. Okay, so these are the four characters that I want to introduce you to as I talk about these issues. Everyday citizenship and why identity matters and how identity matters. So Dan Mendes, um, she won the crown in 1996, born in the Dominican Republic. And of course, you know, it's like those beauty pageants, dreadful sexist occasions, but also displays of national identity or context where you can perform national identity. And uh, she was standing for Miss Italy, uh, did the usual performance, and she was crowned, and of course, as usual, tears. But these weren't tears of happiness, these were tears of distress, because the crowd began to boo. Uh, the way in which the vote was done, it was a combination of uh, judges, who would make their judgment about who was the most beautiful woman, and there was also a certain percentage from a phone-in vote. And people began to boo, although she won. So this isn't what we normally expect on one of these occasions. And these were the sorts of things that a number of observers said on the night. One was a famous photographer, another was actually one of the churches, I think. Danish beautiful, I happily left her this universe. But what's she got to do in Italy? She has nothing of that typical naughtiness of Sophia Loren, famous movie star from way back. She's not Mediterranean. Another one said, a black girl can't be Miss Italy. It's not in the rules, just like Miss Italy can't be German, a Russian, Chinese, or a Japanese girl. Okay, so there's a number of themes here that I want to try and unpack. And in many ways, 
The themes concerning citizenship are the informal benefits. What does one get through being judged a member of a particular community? The ability to represent that community, to speak about that community, to be heard as a community member, and to, re to receive support when you need it. These are all the informal benefits that come from a sense of being part of a community, being recognised as, as belonging. And these are some of the themes I want to talk about. I want to talk about one's subjective identification, how one feels, the degree to which that is recognised by other people, the sorts of criteria that are employed in judging whether somebody belongs or not, the way in which one may claim and perform one's belongingness to other people in a really contexts, and also how these things are consequential. So I use the term identity matters in two ways. First of all, I'm talking about issues, matters concerning identity, topics, but I'm also talking about how these things matter in a different sense of being consequential. And I want to look at both majority and minority perspectives, and I want to record some experimental and some qualitative data in terms of various disciplines, different approaches to data. I do some experiments, I do some surveys, but I also like doing interviews. In different contexts, some people will not touch qualitative data, they just want to do quantitative data, and that's reciprocated by other people. I try to straddle both camps, and where appropriate, I think quantitative methods have something to add, also qualitative methods have something to add. Okay, my second character, Sir Nicholas Fairburn, the psychologist in my I've got the cookson here. This is his father, Ronald Fairburn, who was a key figure in the development of Freudian theory in the UK, one of the key founding figures of the British school of object relations. So, the father and the son, he was a Conservative MP. Uh, I interviewed him a number of times uh, before he died. And I was interested, obviously, in his understanding of what it is to be Scottish. You can't be Scottish. And when we were talking, um, this was one account that he offered. So he's talking about the SNB, the Scottish National Party, and the figures that stand associated with that party. Only a comparatively small proportion of those who live in Scotland are of Scottish descent. Salmond, Alex Salmond, leader of the SNP, campaigner for the yes vote in the referendum, and Mrs Ewing, another well-known Scottish National Party activist, and the other fellow, Sillers, Jim Sillers, still alive. Their grandparents came here in the reign of, that should be King, they came in the reign of King George V, that's 1910 to 1936. They're Irish. They have nothing to do with Scotland. So a particular construal here of what you have to have to be Scottish. Being born in Scotland, that doesn't really matter. It's where your grandparents come from. And if they come from Ireland, then you are still essentially Irish. So who counts? Who can be seen as a citizen? Who can be seen as a member of this community? Who should be afforded the opportunity to speak on our behalf? It depends on one's grandparents. This is a version produced by Conservative. Essentially implying that the Scottish National Party, although they have Scottish in their name, cannot represent the Scottish national interests. They are not really Scottish. Only a few people, he says, count as being really Scottish, and of course, no surprise, he's one of them who traces heritage back. So a particular version of what it is to be Scottish. Here's a second version. Um, Alex Simon, I'm sure that you'll see him maybe the recent months, he's slimmed down quite a lot uh, between when the photograph was taken and the referendum. 
Anyway, a very different vision of what it is to be Scottish. He wishes to see the cause of Scotland argued in English, French, Irish, Indian, Pakistani, Chinese, and every other accent in the rich tapestry of what we should be proud to call the mongrel nation of Scotland. Rather than having a rather exclusive conception of Scottishness, based upon ethnic criteria of one's heritage, one's grandparents, any evidence that we say actually where you come from is not the issue. Whatever accents you have, that's not the issue. We are looking at a, a much more inclusive conception of Scottishness here. And you have the right to speak. And we wish you to speak and champion the cause of Scotland. It's not about where you come from. It's essentially about where you're going. So two very different understandings of the criteria. Now I want to talk a little bit about some research where we try experimentally to manipulate people's understandings of the criteria for belonging. So this is a brief quarter hour of experimental research, and then we'll go on to some interview research. So we have majority Scottish participants, essentially white participants. They read a, an interview about somebody. It's presented to them as an impression formation task. So you're going to read about somebody, and it's an interview with them. And in that interview, you have somebody who identifies as Scottish, they, they present themselves, they, they claim that they're Scottish, they have strong feelings about Scotland, they see themselves as Scottish, and then they proceed to discuss some of the failings of the Scots, some of the problems facing Scottish society, of how Scots need to change in various ways. So what you have here are criticisms of the Scots. And one of the things we know is that hearing criticism is difficult about your group, but it's easier if it comes from somebody that you regard as a member of your community. So if I was to come here and criticise the teaching of the London School of Economics, I'm sure that that would be seen as, what right has this guy got to come outside to come and criticise us? If the same criticism was made by somebody else who's here, it would be accepted. Somebody at the door who really wants to come in. Hi, I did, man. That's no problem at all. So essentially what you have here is you're reading about somebody that they declare their Scottishness, they're criticising um, the Scots, and the identity, the ethnic heritage of this individual will vary. Um, for some of our participants it's presented as Chris Muir, and a photograph is presented, and for other participants it's presented as Yang Shen, a name that has associations with Chinese heritage, and the picture was also presented. So that's what we manipulate whether this person is Christian or Yang Shen. We've also then manipulated participants' understandings of what you have to have to be Scottish. What are the criteria for being Scottish? So now we're trying to look, do the criteria that we saw Nicholas Fairburn and Alex Salmond arguing about, do those arguments matter? Are they consequential? Do they shape people's ideas as who belongs? So we manipulated the criteria, and I can discuss that later on if you want. In one set of uh, participants, we emphasize civic criteria. The important thing is how you feel. If you feel you belong and you want to participate, then that's enough. For the others, we emphasize that it was something bound up with some sense of ethnic heritage, some, something to do with uh, parents and grandparents and the lineage. And then we were interested in how are the criticisms received. You're getting criticisms from, about your group from somebody who claims to be a member of that group. But we are manipulating your understanding of what you have to have to really be in that group. So we made some fairly straightforward predictions. 
very simple and straightforward. Christian Europe, he will be listened to regardless. His, his criticisms are going to be accepted and listened to and accorded a degree of respect. Why? Because he would be seen as one of us under either of these uh, definitions of Scottishness. Yang Shen, however, his position is much more precarious. His position depends essentially on which criteria are being invoked and made to count. So here, with an ethnic conception of Scottishness, Yang Shen is going to be defined as an outsider, and his right to speak and to comment critically about our community will be diminished. Over here, then his identity as a Scot that he feels is something that we will recognize. Under these civic conceptions, that's the important thing, that you identify that you feel you belong and you are committed. In this context, you're much more likely to accept his criticisms than you'll see him as a fellow Scot. So those were our predictions. And just to um, illustrate our data, it came out very, very nicely. So if we look at Chris Moore, he's okay, pretty well, whatever happens. This is the reception of his criticisms. A higher score means a more positive reception. This is the perceptions of the degree to which he's seen as being Scottish. The interesting character is Yang Shen. His position is dependent on the criteria that we were able to get our participants to adopt. Such that, under an ethnic conception, he's not seen as Scottish, and his criticisms are not well received at all. However, under a civic conception, the evaluation of his Scottishness is changed, he's seen as more Scottish, and moreover, his ability to speak and be heard is increased. And that's one of the basic things of citizenship. The possibility to participate, to contribute, to have a voice, to be able to um, put forward ideas, even if they're critical of that group membership. So we've got some quite nice evidence, I think, to suggest that actually these definitions count, these criteria count. These arguments over who belongs, they're not just arguments in the abstracts, they're arguments that can impact directly upon an individual's ability to have their self-conception recognized by others, confirmed, validated, and then to be able to speak in terms of that group membership, to be treated with a degree of respect. I just present here the reception of criticism data graphically. Again, the interesting feature is Yang Shen and how his um, the degree to which people agree with him is greater over here than over here. The criticisms are exactly the same. All that we've done is to vary the ethnic, the, the relevance of these particular criteria. So now I want to introduce you to my, introduce you to my third um, character. And this woman, Carmen Sheck, she was a student of mine um, a couple of years ago, a few years ago, and um, she has Chinese heritage, and here she is wearing a Scottish shirt, carrying a box that's marked fragile, and with a box of pens. And this took a lot of planning, and I didn't think it was going to work at all, but it did. Again, we uh, wanted to see, can we vary people's understandings of what you have to have to be a member of this community? Civic versus ethnic. Civic is more inclusive. Can we vary that? And can we show that somehow it's consequential for whether you will help somebody? Our first study showed whether you will listen to that person, but another aspect of being seen as a member of the community, as a citizen, a fellow, 
is that you're concerned about their well-being. You're concerned to look after them. You have a sense of obligation towards them. That's also part of our sense of citizenship, a horizontal community, such that this person is in need. I have an obligation to, to help them in some way. So we conducted this study in the University Reception, the University of Dundee. People are passing through all the time. And we had two researchers. Firstly, we had somebody that would approach you as they saw you in the reception area, and they'd say, would you mind filling in a questionnaire? This questionnaire contained questions designed to emphasize either ethnic criteria for being Scottish or civic criteria for being Scottish. Then after that completion, um, the researcher would walk away and come and check this woman would appear from the shadows carrying this box marked fragile with these pens and when she positioned herself in the right place in front of you pretty well she would then stumble and drop the pens on the floor she has this box marked fragile she'd have to go to the corner carefully looking after it leaving all these pens on the floor do you walk by or do you stop and help by picking some up Okay. Our prediction was that people would look at this woman differently according to whether they had been led to adopt an ethnic conception of Scottishness or a civic conception of Scottishness. And they understand our prediction was that under an ethnic conception, although she's wearing a Scottish shirt and performing Scottishness in a sense, that claim is going to be received less than under a civic conception. So we wanted to see, well, how many pens are going to get picked up? Well, we find that actually, remarkably, I didn't suspect this, I didn't believe we were going to get these results, but we find that they pick up more pens under a simple conception. She was upset by this because she sees herself as Scottish, but she was quite shocked to find that the help extended to her wasn't anything to do with her per se, it was to do with the participants' understandings of the criteria for membership in this community. We were a bit suspicious, we thought, well, maybe those results are a bit flaky, let's try it again. So we extended it, we did it again in the sports centre this time. And this was good fun because Carmen Sheck again was our, part, was our um, experimenter. And the poor woman this time had to wear a Scottish shirt sometimes, or an English shirt other times. Wearing an English shirt in a sports centre in Scotland, that's a risk, that's a health risk actually. Uh, so she had to switch between these two shirts. I've still got them in my office. She's the duck and dive, coming out dressed in different shirts. Okay? And again, it's exactly the same time. It's exactly the same study. She's either wearing this shirt, a Scottish shirt, or she's wearing an English shirt. And our participants, again, we have them being stopped. They've completed a questionnaire. We have a manipulation there designed either to make a civic conception salient or an ethnic conception. Again, she goes through the performance of dropping these things. And we can look then at the pens that are picked up. This is after the questionnaire, sorry, after the um, pen picking up, we called the participants and we asked them to fill in a brief questionnaire where we asked some questions about how Scottish they thought Carmen was. And again, what we find is that uh, in the civic conception, when she's wearing a Scottish shirt, she's seen as more Scottish than in the other conditions. That's a significant difference, okay? In other words, when she's performing her Scottishness by wearing that shirt, in a civic conception, under a civic conception, she's seen indeed as being more Scottish than in the other conditions. 
So we've got some evidence for that. And then when we look at the pens picked up, again we have some nice data. It's here again, under a civic conception of Scottishness, when she's wearing a Scottish shirt, that she gets more help, more pens are picked up. Now you could say, well, pens, picking up pens, so what? That's pretty trivial. Yeah? But it's an index. It's the informal, everyday helping that can impact upon the quality of your life. We often think about conceptions of group identity as predicting hatred or predicting hostile feelings. Well, that's an important thing to study, but also the, the support of everyday life, of being regarded as a fellow, of having other people concerned about your welfare and well-being. That's a big part of a group membership, of a group identity. It's a big part, I think, of citizenship, of other people looking at you and regarding you as of worth and of value, that your welfare is something that they should be concerned about. That's a big part, I think, of citizenship. And here, even something as simple as pen picking, it's an index of how important it is, these criteria, a civic conception versus an ethnic conception. You'll notice, of course, that the least help was given to Carmen when she was wearing an English shirt in an ethnic condition. Here, she really was seen as a double outsider. She was of Chinese heritage, therefore she can't be Scottish under an ethnic conception. Moreover, she's sporting an English shirt. Uh, we're certainly not going to have her interests at heart. So we're not going to pick up uh, pens and for those of you who are interested in the analysis of indirect effects, as all social psychologists are, not, <laughs> you can do fancy statistical analyses that show that in this condition, sorry, when she's wearing a Scottish shirt, this manipulation has an impact on the number of pens picked up via the perceptions of, the, of her Scottishness. But let's not get involved in that. Okay, so there you go, some preliminary experimental data to say that these criteria matter. There's a civic conception impacts upon the degree to which an individual can, be, can speak and be, and be heard. It also impacts upon the amount of help that will be um, given. But we have a pretty odd study here. We have somebody walking around with a Scottish t-shirt on. We don't do that all of the time, to display one's national identity. What are the ways in which you can display national identity? What are the ways in which you can display your psychological affiliation to the community? How can you actually accomplish that? So we had some focus groups where we had people talking about what do you have to do to be able to show that you do identify and that you do belong and that you are, in a sense, um, wishing to be a member of this civic community. So if a civic identity or a civic definition of nationhood gives you the possibility to identify and to have that identification recognised, what would you need to do to signal to other people that you do want to belong, that you do identify, that you do want to be part of that community? So these are the sorts of things that came up, and you could expect these perhaps. Living, working, paying your taxes in that place, becoming a part of the community, developing a knowledge about the country, adopting the culture, abandoning an old culture. So for somebody that wasn't born in Scotland, that had migrated to Scotland, under a civic conception of Scottishness, yes, you can become Scottish. What would you need to do? You're not going to walk around with a t-shirt. What would you need to do? These are the sorts of things. But there's always ambiguities here and complexities. So if you want to stand for the PTA, Parent Teachers Association, that shows that you're investing 
but it could also be seen as, well, these people are taking over, you know, that's inappropriate. You could perhaps um, adopt the culture, but perhaps, you know, you would, if you're having a family marriage, you perhaps wear a kilt or something like that. So that could be seen as, yes, you're adopting the culture, but it could also be regarded with a degree of suspicion. What are these guys doing? Is that appropriate? I don't know. Okay. It could also be concerns about the motivations. Are these genuine motivations, or perhaps are people being rather instrumental? So, with these focus groups, these were the themes that came about. If you, if you wish to convey, perform, and demonstrate that you uh, identified with the community, that you really had the interests of the community at heart, then effortful activity on your behalf, that's important. That you have a degree of choice, that you've chosen to become involved and to do this stuff. That demonstrates that you are a good citizen. That it's a motivation for the common good. That it really is at the national level rather than local level. And not when it's just something that's automatic, anybody would do it, it's instrumental, something like that. So here's an example, it comes from our focus groups. We're moving out of the qualitative data. They were discussing, you know, what if somebody organises a demonstration against racism? They organise a protest outside the Scottish Parliament. Would that be seen as indicating their commitment to Scotland? Would that be the sort of thing that is a bit like wearing a t-shirt that conveys that you're invested in the community, that you want to be a part of it? That civic conception of Scottishness? And then they have a debate. Somebody says, well, that's personal. I don't think that's got anything to do with the country. That's just your personal belief. And somebody else says, that, that means that they see themselves as someone with a commitment. Because you'd think that if you want to improve the country by making it less racist, then, you're in, then you've invested something in the country. Then the other person comes back. But you probably want that all over the world. Yeah, that's true. So maybe it's got nothing to do with that specific country. So here are people debating as to what really indicates that somebody has identified with the community and that they are acting as a citizen within that community. You'd have thought at first sight, I certainly would, that organising a protest against racism to improve that community would be seen as, yeah, that's a sign of people being involved, that's active citizenship, that ticks all of the boxes in terms of civic criteria, you've invested psychologically, you're making a commitment, it's effortful activity, it's motivated for the common good, but is it organising for a, for a national community? The guy here says, really, that's personal. It's your personal values. They argue against that. And then he says, but you'd probably want that all over the world. In other words, it's not really Scottish. So there are actually arguments and ambiguities. It's not so clear exactly what you need to do to be able to communicate and to be able to perform your national affiliation as, a, as, a, as an immigrant into Scotland. So again, just um, to wrap this up, we did another experiment. Essentially, you read an interview about somebody from England who came to Scotland. They claim to be Scottish because they've lived there for a good number of years and they feel Scottish. Again, they're going to make some criticisms of the Scots. And we have three conditions to this experiment. Essentially, in the one condition, they just say they don't feel Scottish. They're not really very involved in the local community. Here, they feel Scottish and they have a few commitment behaviours. Here they feel Scottish and many commitment behaviours. So in other words, we're looking at how do people present themselves to others and do those others pay attention to these commitment behaviours and does that impact 
upon this individual's um, claim to, uh, to be Scottish? Is, is it consequential in any way? So how did we do it? Well, a few commitment behaviours. I applied for Birmingham Glasgow University, got accepted in Glasgow, that's why I'm here now. After finishing my Masters, I found myself staying. I found myself staying. I volunteer for a local charity. It doesn't cost a lot of time. I partly do it because it looks good on my CV. So these are few commitment behaviours. In the other condition, other participants read something else. Many commitment behaviours. So I got accepted for both Birmingham and Glasgow, but I decided for Glasgow, choice. That's why I'm here now. After my Masters, I chose to stay here. I get some sense of investment in the community. I volunteer for a Scottish charity. It's not just a local one, it's that national level. It does cost a lot of time, effortful, and it's an added bonus. It looks good on the CV. So essentially, we're just trying to manipulate how people describe themselves in this interview. They then make some criticisms about the Scots and Scotland. How do people receive those criticisms? The measures we have, agreement with criticisms, negative attitudes towards the speaker, the perceived constructiveness of the criticisms that are being made, and endorsement of various proposals for change that the interviewee is making. How are those measures affected by the various conditions? And it's very simple and very nice that in this condition, the red bar, this is where you have expressed your feeling, your psychological investment, and you've now been able to document a series of um, things that evidence that. Then you will be agreed with more. You will have less negative feelings towards you. Your comments will be seen, your criticisms will be seen as more constructive. And people will agree that Scotland should indeed change in the direction which you're advocating. If you have less uh, commitment behaviours to warrant that claim to Scottishness, then people won't be agreeing with you so much. People will have stronger negative feelings towards you on the basis of your criticisms. Your comments won't be seen as so constructive and there'll be less support for the sort of change that you wish. So how you feel is important, but it's not enough. Can you evidence your civic commitment and the sorts of behaviours that people wish to see that sense of a choice, that you are actively involved, that it's done for the nation, that it comes at some personal cost, it involves effort, it involves choice. Those are the things that mark out the red bar and the blue bar, and if you have them, then your claims to being Scottish are going to be received to a greater extent. Okay, now I want to talk exclusively about some qualitative data and about minority group experiences. And I want to talk about dual identities, because clearly, Carmen Sheck, yes, she feels Scottish, but she also has a, a heritage that is important to her, that she identifies with and values, and so she wishes that identity to be recognised and accorded respect as well. So when we start to talk about the citizenship of minority group members, yes, of course, we can look at how they perform their Scottishness, or their Britishness, and of how those performances are accepted or rejected, according to whether people adopt ethnic or civic criteria and according to how they actually are able to evidence their civic commitment. We can do that, as we've just looked at so far. But when we're looking at these identities, these are much more complex. She's much more than just Scottish. She also has a particular heritage that she may wish to see recognised. And of course, these identities are mutually constitutive. They impact upon each other, they shape each other. And 
the work I want to talk about now, talks about the importance of recognizing both elements of her identification, both her national identity and also her minority group identity. And recognizing both of those is important because it allows her to speak and be heard on terms that are her own. Uh, so now I'm going to talk briefly about some research I've done with British uh, Muslims. I should preface all of this by saying that these are interviews with various activists associated through various organizations. I'm clearly making no claims whatsoever about the representativeness of this data about Muslims in Britain at all. So it's, it's highly selective, but it throws into light certain issues. And the one thing that came through time and time and time again through my interviews was this sense that Muslims have gone from invisibility to a degree of hyper-visibility. So in the 1990s, this is one person saying, no, you can't be a Muslim. You're either Pakistani, Asian, or Arab, or you're British, but no, you can't be Muslim. This definition doesn't exist. We're a secular society. Now, certainly, yes, you're a Muslim, and that clouds everything else. You're not a Muslim and also British, and also a professional lawyer, and also blah, blah, blah. Now you're just a Muslim, and that's bad news. And it's bad news because it limits your ability to speak and be heard on terms that are your own. And I want to try to illustrate that in various ways. So here is somebody that was very active in the Stop the War Coalition, a very articulate Scottish woman. And uh, she said that time and time again, when she talked about her activism, she wishes to speak and be heard as a national citizen. People would say about the war, Oh, because you're a Muslim? And she'd say, no, because I just don't agree with, with the policies. They're our soldiers. I don't see them as the British, the British soldiers as if they're something apart from me, you know. I don't see that. I'm part and parcel of this society. They're out there protecting British interests, which are my interests, because I'm a citizen. And so all these issues affect me. And to say, well, actually, you're a Muslim, you're Pakistani, so stay in your box, no. Okay? But her experience, time and again, was of her ability to speak and be heard as a British citizen was being compromised, denied. She wasn't heard as a national citizen. She was heard as a Muslim. And that limited the ability for her to speak. And it violates her self-conception. Yes, she wished her Muslim identity to be recognized, but it, she also wished her Britishness, also her Scottishness, to be recognized. And that was an important platform from which to speak about this issue of foreign affairs. As soon as you're presented as a Muslim voice, then all sorts of things impact upon the degree to which you can speak and be heard and have an impact in terms that are your own. Here's another example. This is from a, a, an imam that I interviewed, quite a, a leading figure. And um, it's a double misrecognition. I'd like to be called for a discussion on the state of our education in our country, the health service. You know, equality of pay for men and women. You hardly hear a Muslim voice. It's as if Muslims don't have a view on the mainstream life of our country. The only time they have a view is when they have to come and say sorry for somebody else's bombs or to come and face the music for something they're not guilty of. So it's a double misrecognition. You're certainly not being seen as a national citizen. He, he was, as I said, an articulate, a successful imam. He was often invited onto radio programs, but to talk about certain things, not to talk about wider issues. So he's not being heard as a, as a British citizen with a concern about the health service, with a concern about education, with a concern about equality of pay for men and women. No, 
are not to speak on those issues. When I am invited to speak, it's a double misrecognition. It's not as a British citizen, it's just as a Muslim. Moreover, it's on terms that really are not my own at all. I'm having to apologize for somebody else's bombs. I'm having to come to face the music for something that we're not guilty of. So it really is a, a double misrecognition. And that double misrecognition is powerful because it limits one's ability to speak and be heard. But it's also something that is psychologically deeply painful. It's a violation of one's self-conception. And this is another aspect of citizenship, I think, that we can easily, easily neglect. That sense of the injustice and the pain and the hurt that comes from realizing that your voice isn't being heard in a way in which you wish and on the terms that you wish. So here is a very successful uh, doctor that I interviewed here in London. And uh, she was a consultant. She spoke of the sense of just being Muslim. And she was tired. She really was tired. Um, everything I do is defined by being a Muslim. And I don't think it should have to be. It should just be because I'm a British person. I'm a British woman. I'm a British daughter, doctor, whatever. I'm tired. It's almost, I'm tired of being a Muslim sometimes. I want to live my life. Is that terrible? That's how I feel. So I think these feelings are particularly painful when you feel you have something to offer. Particularly as... British citizen and as a Muslim and as a British Muslim. Because very often, because these identities link with each other in very powerful ways, a violation of one identity or a non-recognition of one identity impacts upon the recognition of the other identity. So I want to talk now a little bit about how these uh, participants that I interviewed and representative, as I've mentioned, how did, how did they characterize the relationship between their Britishness and their Muslim identity? And the thing that came through an awful lot was that they would see commonalities between these identities or synergies between these identities. So they really did interpenetrate. So not being heard as a British citizen could have consequences for your understanding of your Muslim identity and the degree to which that was valued and vice versa. So I'll quickly um, shoot through this A lot would talk about how these two identities are highly congruent. And they would say that you know, there are some things that people say, oh, look, there's a big difference here. Wow, that's a different lifestyle, completely incompatible with Britishness. And they'd say, well, this is just crazy. But it all depends upon the level of abstraction. They wouldn't say it in quite these terms, but analytically, essentially, this is what they're saying. Whether something is different or similar depends upon the level of abstraction. You can have something that is different at the level of practice, but it can be similar at another level in terms of the values. So here is somebody, this guy was a taxi driver, who was also very active in Palestine solidarity campaigns. And he said, pray five times a day. I pray five times a day as a taxi driver, he said. Is that a problem? No, that's not a problem at all. It's not incompatible with British lifestyle in any way whatsoever. One prayer lasts 10, 15 minutes. So if you can't give up altogether, one hour, 15 minutes of solitude, peace. Most people do spend that time in yoga in the morning or exercise, physical exercise or something. Different practices, but essentially common values. Prayer is a way to clear your head, get a moment of peace and calm. Doing yoga is a way to clear your head, get a moment of peace and calm. Doing Pilates is a way of getting head clear, peace and calm. You present it here as just being actually very, very similar at a particular level of abstraction. Different practice, different ways of getting one's peace and calm, but essentially 
the common values of carving out a little bit of time in the day when you can get in tune with yourself and just relax a little. Again, these commonalities developed by somebody else. Very important because it's because of these commonalities that you think you have something to offer. You're not this outside marginal other. You have a sense that these two identities are entirely compatible and that you can speak as a British Muslim and contribute something that there isn't this big incompatibility. So here, um, this is somebody talking about, again, again, this was an imam from a mosque, the principles of Britishness, of honesty, of goodness, being good to the neighbour, which have been passed down through the Christian tradition, are what Islam and Muslims should be promoting inside themselves. That's what it's all about. So I see that being Muslim, if you're a good Muslim, then you're a good British. So there's no any kind of difference. So in other words, again, there's that sense of this commonality, such that one can be a good Muslim, and one would be through doing that, exemplifying the values of Britishness. Your performance as a Muslim could indeed be, for this person, understood and experienced as a performance of Britishness. So then when you have somebody coming along presenting these identities as in contradiction, that really is a violation of your sense of who you are, and it is deeply painful. It also limits your possibility to contribute. A number of people would talk about how the different strands of these various identities could contribute to each other. So here, this is somebody, again, a very articulate young man. This is my society. This is a country that I want to develop. I want to become Great Britain again. Alcohol is a part of British life. I have to look to the greater good. I'll Islamicise the process by having an orange juice with you. I'm hoping over time that you'll come to my way of thinking that alcohol is not good for you. It might never come to that. But hey, it'll give us room for discussion. That's the way it is. I can't shun you because you're doing something I don't approve of. Because that's not Muslim values. That's a human value to start talking to somebody because you don't like what they're doing. So here you have somebody again emphasising the compatibility between these identities and I have got something to offer Britishness. I want to invest in Britishness, I want to contribute to Britishness, it's something that I value and I have a regard for the greatest good. I'm not going to walk away, I want to participate. But will you let me participate? Will you give me the opportunity to contribute? And he emphasises that actually that discussion of our differences exemplifies the Muslim values. So again, that sense of these identities, if you recognise the one, it has implications for the recognition of the other. If you do not recognise the one, it also has implications for your ability to participate. It's a two-way process. People would also talk not only about how um, Islam can contribute to Britishness, that as citizens, as British Muslims, we can bring something from Islam to Britain, if you will let us. They would also talk about it being a two-way process of how their Muslim identity is um, enriched through being British. So uh, one activist would talk about how Britishness democratises mosque politics. So he says the mosque is a place of politics, but it can't be partisan politics. It's got to be democracy politics. Then you allow your community to get involved in the system. And he was critical of the traditional system as he characterised it, where the mosque imam would act as a gatekeeper and that they would get the grants to distribute to the community. And he characterised that as something that had been imported from Pakistan. So it was a Pakistani or an Indian version of politics. So for this guy, there was this, again, mutual supportive relationship between these identities 
and that the British allowed me to be a better Muslim and it allowed the mosque to develop into um, an organization that really was um, you know, more democratic, that it really did function in a more effective way and that it was, as he said later on in the interview, functioning in a way that was not only British but also more genuinely Islamic, that we managed to um, shake off some of the politics from the Indian subcontinent. And then he went on to say that actually Muslim activism should be welcomed because it's getting involved. It really is exemplifying citizenship rather than being something that people should be scared about or suspicious about or concerned that the mosque was talking about politics. You should, he said, be celebrating the fact that the mosque is a site where politics is being discussed. That is a sign that Britishness is permeating mosque politics and is allowing those sorts of debates. But of course, the standard response is one often of horror to people are concerned about what is spoken about in mosques. So again, that sense of these two identities um, mingling, there's that intersectionality, that mutually constitutive, they bring benefits, they allow you to speak as a citizen. And if you fail to recognize one element, if you just focus on one element rather than the other, then your sense of your identity is compromised and violated, and the position from which you can speak is also being compromised and violated. So just to wrap up. There are pleasures associated from this, this synergist being recognized, these two identities. When they are recognized, that is something that elicits a sense of pleasure. Uh, I'll put the coat up here, this denim jacket, because the woman I was speaking to, she wore hijab. Um, she was clearly um, a seriously devout young Muslim woman. But she was talking here about a distinctive urban style that she saw as being very British, a British Islamic fashion style, combining hijab with denim jeans and jackets and whatever. And she said that her friend says to her, I love this urban Muslim female look. Because you're marrying the Britishness with your Islamicness. I love this. It's so distinct. And then the interviewee says, this is what British Islamicness is. It's about, I love this term because it encapsulates what Islam is about. You have an Indian Islamicness, you have an African Islamicness, you have a Russian Islamicness. The good in a culture and your faith is naturally joined together. So for her, these two identities really do fuse together. And recognizing her Britishness is not only important in terms of recognizing her Britishness, it also affirms her understanding of her Muslim identity. For her, a Muslim identity is something that will accommodate to the local context, something that will fuse with local cultural traditions. So by recognizing her Britishness, you can also be recognizing her understanding of her faith as something that accommodates to the local context. That's something that came out time and time again in the interviews. So here is a, an interview with somebody else. And I say it's doubly consequential. The recognition of, her Briti of Britishness can also confirm your understanding of your Muslim identity. If it's a universal religion, then it must have features of accommodating itself to all sorts of environments. Yes, of course, Islam began in the Middle East, but it's never been restricted to one language or one country or one culture. For Muslims, it's a matter of their faith and belief as well. They cannot agree to this accusation that Islam is something alien to one part of the world or one culture of the world, because if they accept it, they'll be denying some of the fundamental text of their own book. Again, denying the 
Britishness will also impact on their sense of their internal identity, invalidates or problematizes, misrecognizes their understanding of their Muslim identity. So for all of these reasons, I think the issue of recognition is key. And this brings us then to the fourth character that I started the presentation with. In the absence of such recognition, one's self-conception, these identities fused together, mutually constituted, put one in a position where one can speak, one wishes to speak, one has a sense that one ought to be able to speak and to offer contributions that one wishes to be heard. However, if there's constant questioning of your um, commitments, constant questioning of your um, genuine belongingness, or if ethnic criteria are invoked rather than civic criteria, clearly your ability to speak and be heard on terms that are already on your own are compromised. You can't actually see this very well, but this guy has red flowers in his beard, that poppies. And you may remember recently there was an attempt to advertise a hijab scarf with poppies on that you could wear a scarf that would be Islamic, but you would also, because it has the poppies on, be able to participate in the act of remembrance around, um, what do we call it? Yes, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it's an opportunity. And he um, has a little picture of himself with poppies inserted into his beard. Uh, a satirical comment upon this sense that we need to perform our Britishness. And a number of folks would say, now, how the hell do we do this? What the hell is the proof? You see, the proof is you abide by the law of the country. You live here peacefully. You're causing no offence to other people. You're paying your taxes. You're not trying to escape your duties as a citizen. That's about it. I mean, I don't think you've got a proof. So there's this sense that I feel this, but what do I have to do? Do I have to wear the T-shirt as we have the girl in, um, the young woman in, in Scotland? wearing the Scottish t-shirt. This is essentially the guy not quite wearing the t-shirt, he's wearing the poppy in his beard. But essentially it's the same. You have to do the performance, and the performance is such that it's difficult to get it recognized. In part because other people may be working with criteria, ethnic criteria, that will not recognize that. But even if they're willing to work with the civic criteria and say, okay, yeah, you can become part of our community if you demonstrate commitment. What the hell do you have to do in everyday life to be able to do that? Do you have to walk around with the t-shirt? Do you have to walk around with the poppies in your beard? So that sense of um, seeking to perform is extremely painful. And just to close, you have to always close with Norman Tebbit. I think you're all too young probably to remember Norman Tebbit, a uh, Conservative MP, famous for talking about the cricket test. And this was to be a test by which we could judge whether somebody really was loyal to England. Which team do you support when there is an England-Pakistani cricket match? Which team do you support when the English team is playing the West Indies? So here is a Muslim activist, and she was very despondent about having to speak in particular ways. It's a kind of a cricket test, come real in a way for Muslims, it really is, increasingly that you have to somehow show you're a liberal, democratically-minded person who's very tolerant in their view. It's as if Muslims aren't allowed to have the same views as everybody else in society. There's almost a kind of 
like a kind of ideal Muslim citizen that Muslims somehow have to aspire to. So again, that sense of I identify, how can I communicate my commitment to this place, even if there is a civic conception that people are willing to tolerate and to accept, what can I do? And it's particularly problematic for Muslims when there is this uh, bar is set in a particular way. In many ways, she's arguing that the bar is set much higher for Muslims, that they're not allowed to have the same views as everybody else. They have to be this ideal, liberally, liberal, democratically minded person to be able to be recognized as a member of our community. Again, necessarily limiting the sorts of things that one can, one can say or think. One is having to speak in particular ways and to act on other people's terms. So, I started off by saying that identity matters, and I think it matters in various ways. First of all, there are a number of matters that are issues for analysis. So the criteria that are in, being employed, what are the criteria in any particular context that are judged, relevant, or appropriate? Those are argued over. Civic and ethnic criteria are argued over. They're certainly argued over in Scotland. And it's because of that debate that our experiments worked, I think, because we were able to emphasize ethnic in some conditions or civic in other conditions. So that's certainly an issue, to explore other criteria that are invoked in particular contexts. And secondly, in terms of these uh, identity matters, things that are worth exploring, people's own understandings of their multiplicity of identities and how they relate to each other. We're not only national subjects. It's an important part of who we are because of the quality that we live in. We're also members of a variety of groups, and those identities can inform our understanding of ourselves and how we wish to speak and be heard. And if those are not recognised, then I think one's ability to participate on one's own terms really is being compromised. And I think that has to be central to any conception of citizenship, that one can speak on one's own terms and be heard on one's own terms. I've emphasised the everyday encounters to look at how people perform their commitments. So it may be a performance that involves wearing a t-shirt with a Scottish flag on it. It may be that you perform your commitments by being involved in local community activism, things like that. It's those everyday encounters. The everyday encounters of recognition. What are the factors that impact upon that? It's also the issue of mattering is in that sense of it being consequential. Identity does matter. It impacts upon how your criticism of a country or a community is received. We showed that experimentally. Impacts then upon who is listened to and on whose terms. It also impacts upon the individual in terms of those costs of non-recognition. If one feels that one is fully part of this community, that one has the opportunity to speak and to offer things from a range of different um, backgrounds, but that is to be rejected, that is closed down, that is um, judged inappropriate. That has psychological costs. It also has social costs. So we've just got one minute. A more recent project has been looking at the Muslim experience in airports. Um, we've been doing work in particular in Edinburgh Airport looking at Muslim
wisdom's experiences of surveillance. And of course, it's a, I flew from Dundee. Dundee must be one of the smallest airports in the world. The plane was for sure one of the smallest planes I've ever seen in the world. But I was pretty well strip searched, you know, shoes off, belts off, going with, with the beeper and things. So it, it's a common enough experience, but um, for Muslim passengers, it is immensely intrusive. And of course, it's all done in public, and people are looking at you, making assumptions about you. We've done a number of interviews with people now about their experience of surveillance. And it is something that violates all sorts of self conceptions. Yes, people get annoyed because they're delayed because uh, the family are kept waiting, they're taken to the one side, whatever. But in many ways, it's much more, much more importantly about that psychological sense of my sense of who I am is just being violated by representatives of this community, the police, the security services, whatsoever, whatever. And here's, here's one interview that um, I really will stop with this one. Uh, it was with a, a young man, and he was stopped by somebody in a suit. And they said, this is just a routine inspection, sir. And I said, you're pastors. And he said, this isn't a routine inspection. The routine inspection takes place down there, where there's the UK border agency. There's nothing routine about you stopping me. And I'm not going to show you my passport. I'll show you the person down there my passport, where it really is routine. This is, as he put it, a slot the packing check and I'm not playing. And he was arrested. Now you could look at that as being uh, an example of him failing to act as a good citizen. You could also look at it as him performing his citizenship. He's going to speak on his terms, he's not going to speak on terms that really violates his sense of who he is. So he said, my thing is that, you know, I'll not play, you know, the neat little Pakistani Muslim or whatever and say, oh yeah, you know, and that's what's very prevalent in our community, the fear factor. A lot of our people will not stand up and actually question anything. If you're going to get picked on, you might as well put on an identity and show yourself. So I will get picked on, but that doesn't mean that I have to be subservient to all this nonsense, which I believe is nonsense. So I'd say you could look at this and think, well, that's a failure to act as a good citizen. But actually, you could also look at it from this point of view as an assertion of his citizenship. He's going to act on his terms, not on your terms, which are crazy and bonkers, but a clear sense of his rights of being a law-abiding citizen. He's not willing to go through this humiliation and the degradation of this so-called routine inspection that he understood to be something more akin to a spot the package. At which point... Awesome. Great, thank you. Can I just add up, what, what was he arrested for? Like, what, what's the crime if not, like... Uh, for refusing to, 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 yeah, not complying with um, a request. Like, to be honest, I don't really know. Yeah. Um, I'm curious if the legality... I mean, if, if he'd been white British, whether... I suspect under Section 7 of the Terrorism Act, they can do all manner of things. So. Strategies at airports. So I know um, a friend of mine yeah. um, shaves 
gets a haircut the day before flying, wears a suit, and he still gets checked. So like he was traveling with four four white people. Um, or actually, I'm sorry, four white people and one like uh, black Canadian. But they're all EU, US passport holders. He's North African. You know, he's incredibly well dressed, real thick slobs. No, we none of us could check. We all have liquids in our bags that we're not supposed to have. And they call security checks saying that there's a Tunisian attempting to board the airplane, despite the fact that they had like a release as you can imagine. And through all the security checks, it was still stopped before boarding the plane because they were afraid of terrorist threats. And I was kind of interesting, like despite yeah. the fact of his best attempt to perform, you know, to, to look like a legitimate person and even having all the documentation needed and having his visual performance, he still stopped. Yeah. Well, these things talk about just trying to make yourself invisible. So, you know, you try to avoid eye contact, but then they were aware, oh, they may think I'm acting in a strange way now, so you then make eye contact. So you do all these strange things. Uh, so it's, it's this dreadful position to be in. Whatever you do, you kind of have a sense of what's going to go wrong. Um, so the Association for the Study of Ethnicity and Nationalism is an interdisciplinary student-led research association founded by research students and academics in 1990 at the London School of Economics and Political Science. We seek to fulfill two broad objectives, to facilitate and maintain an interdisciplinary global network of researchers, academics and other scholars interested in ethnicity and nationalism, and to stimulate, produce and diffuse world-class research on ethnicity and nationalism. We do this through our global membership, our two leading journals, Nations and Nationalism and Studies in Ethnicity and Nationalism, our newsletter, The Ruritanian, which provides key updates on information in the field, and through our program of events. Our YouTube channel features videos from our annual conferences, seminar series, lectures and debates. You can find us online at lse.ac.uk forward slash ASIN, on Twitter at ASIN Events, or on Facebook at facebook.com slash ASIN Events.